We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning for the first time since season one, we have the witty and wonderful Maria Lewis, a best-selling author, screenwriter, and film curator based in Australia. Over the past 18 years of her career, Maria Lewis has built a great reputation as a storyteller across a diverse range of mediums. She's the author of over 10 internationally published novels, including the upcoming Mockingbird Strikeout from Marvel, Slasher the Graveyard Shift, and the Orealis award-winning Supernatural Sisters series. As a screenwriter, she has worked on projects for AMC, Netflix, SBS, Stan, ABC, DC Comics, Ubisoft, and many more. She is the writer, producer, researcher, and host of Aji award-winning audio documentaries, The Phantom Never Dies, about the first superhero, and Josie and the Podcats, about the 2001 cult film. And this year, she's making her directorial debut with the short film, The House That Hungers, which is based upon her Oriella and Dipmar Award-nominated short story of the same name. Maria, it is so great to have you back. How are you doing? And how's 2023 treating you? Oh, fuck. New year, new me. No, just kidding. New year, (laughs) same old bullshit. But um, the year's been kind of fine so far, dot, dot, dot. I had a really weird, like my 2022, it was great professionally and personally, but I also just had like a lot of, I like a lot of licks, if that makes sense. As in, like, I had a lot of bad luck. I broke four bones in the one year, yes. and it just like really oh. fucks you up. You know, the things like it just puts you behind schedule <laughs> oh, <laughs> on no. all the shit you want to do in life. And anyway, my goal for 2023 was no broken bones. So, so far, so good. Um, yes. And it's so nice to be back because, uh, particularly for this subject, but um, I just love love to chat with the film girls and in particular on Night and Day and Longshot, which are absolutely two of my faves for very different reasons, but still. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember seeing on your social media about the broken bones. Like one was when Ugh. you were at a convention or yeah. signing books and I just, you know, you were soldiering <laughs> on through and I just thought, wow, Maria is the toughest chick. Yes. <laughs> Well, it's more that like this is the thing because part of the job, obviously, as you know, is like you have to be on, you have to be accessible on different social medias, right? And my dream is to eventually be successful enough that you could disappear entirely and just go like full hermit mode, right? Um, I think it's Sinead O'Connor who lives in a castle with cats and I'm like, a castle with like boxes or something, you know what I mean? Like some yeah. big like Irish wolfhound, some like large dog. That would be my vibe. But <laughs> until that point, you have to be face presenting on the socials, right? So after the first bone break, there's a lot, lot everyone went 
weighs in on the discourse, like, oh, what are your bones made of moths? Like, oh, Mr. Glass over here. And then the second <laughs> and third breaks, that discourse multiplies. And by the fourth time, I was like, I don't want to fucking post shit, man. Like these people are going to be in here being like, well, what have you got that bone eating disease or something? But because I was at an event, I had to be like, hi, I'm disappearing from the signing table for, you know, a few hours, BRB. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This I kept thinking at the time on that last one, I was like, something good must be around the corner. <laughs> yes, I, I believe that for sure. And talking to your good friend and my friend Blake Howard, he was raving yeah. about your directorial debut, The House That Hungers. You gotta send oh, me a link stop. or something. I can't oh, wait to fucking, see it. I'll send and, you a link right after this. Yeah, fuck yeah. Uh, we have finally have a final cut. So I'm like fast and loose with the links. I'm like, fuck yeah, we finished this bitch. Let's get it out there. Yeah, he was raving about it and saying just how brilliant it was. And so what was that like directing your first movie? Well, I honestly, I had just come off a production um, where it was like a a TV series, I guess you could say, where I guess you could say it literally was a TV series. But um, our showrunner was a quite well-known director and was a real asshole and was really horrible to people. And I had just like sort of had a few experiences almost back to back where there had been these quote unquote legends of Australian film directors who you sort of like you put on this pedestal right and then you get the chance to work with them and it's really fascinating because it's just a graveyard of people's like hopes and dreams and ambitions Mm -hmm. around them because they're such genuinely horrible people or at least in the specific instance this handful was And I guess my fear going into it was like, you don't know whether you can do something. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. Right. So the opportunity had come up and I was like, fuck it. I'll never get a chance. I'll never get a better chance to try directing than adapting my own short story, writing the script and directing and producing it. So like, let's give it a crack. And if you suck, then at least you know that you suck. Or like, if you hate it, then at least, you know, And so I guess my big fear going into it was I just didn't want to be an asshole and I wanted everybody on set to have, like, it sounds like I'm an event planner. I wanted everyone to have a good time. But I also (laughs) feel like that is, that ends up helping, assisting the work. If people feel safe and they feel respected and they feel heard, they are better placed in a better position to deliver their best work. And short films, you know, they don't make money. They're always made on a skint budget. So it really is all hands on deck. Like it's very rare that one person's mm-hmm. doing one one role. They're usually doing six or seven different ones. So it was a yeah, really fascinating experience. We shot in Adelaide in this old castle, um, which Australia is uh, like structurally new country and then spiritually old. So there's not very many old structures that we can use for stuff like this. Um, and so the story is essentially a about a woman who gets stuck in lockdown inside a haunted house and she has to use her her wits and cunning to survive as the house tries to eat her. And it was really hectic, but it was such a fun experience. Like I really, really enjoyed it. And getting to see, like you go through the editing process, it's like a book, it's like a comic or a script or anything. It's like you can see the threads of your work there, but it wasn't really until the the second or third final cuts that I was like, oh shit. Yeah, we got it. Okay, cool. We have something really cool here. Like my, my friend Kimmy is the lead in the film and she's so talented. She's in this, um, one of my favorite shark movies, Great White (laughs) and this uh, tween series Bureau of Magical Things. Like she has so much experience and she was just like on it immediately. Pop Ellen uh, is this like very Australian fella uh, whose like slogan is like she'll be right, and he was the production designer, and he did such great work. Kate Boyle, our costumer, and one of my oldest friends, Amanda, um, she did the score for the film, and it's just I don't know. It's like it's filmmaking is a team sport, and I just was like watching the final cut, feeling so proud of everyone, and being so happy that like it feel it generally feels like everyone's bringing an A game. So fuck knows, like. The aim is to try and get into a few festivals as is the life cycle for most shorts. So we're in that process now. So fuck knows when everyone will get to see it. But you, Jen, will get to see it after this because I'll send you a link. (laughs) 
Oh, I cannot wait. And yeah, we got to get it into some festivals over here. I think that would be awesome. We have a good festival here in Phoenix, Phoenix Film Fest. So love that. I have heard of that one. Yes. Yes. Are they genre favoring? Like, as in, you know, they love horror and sci-fi and fantasy, everything. Yeah. Yeah, because that's always the, like, it's one thing, like, festivals, yes, but then it's, like, trying to weed out the ones that are likely to play genre stuff. And, yeah, okay, rad. Okay, we will submit to them. Great advice. Yes. Great advice. Yeah, perfect. Well, is there anything else you're working on lately? Anything you want us to be on the lookout for? Uh, well, my Marvel book, Mockingbird Strikeout, comes out in June, and that's June everywhere, so I don't have to be like Australian release date, UK release date, whatever, um, comes out June for everyone, which I'm very excited about because so I love cool. that character. Yeah, I'm, Mockingbird rips, and there hasn't been any new Mockingbird content for six years. So getting to play in that sand pit was extremely exciting and nerve-wracking, but you know, fuck knows. Hopefully it turned out okay. I feel happy with the work, but like, let's leave it to everybody else to decide. If people hate it, I'm sure they'll tell you real quick. And then um, <laughs> I have uh, a slasher, which I've always wanted to write. It's called The Graveyard Shift and it comes out uh, globally in September. Oh, that is so exciting. I cannot wait. And I'm just thrilled to have you back for this topic as we were talking about. I love how we arrived on the theme (laughs) for today, just through Twitter, because we kind of met through Twitter. And I think it was through a good question that Karina Longworth asked. Um, She wanted to know which film you think has a reputation for being bad or a flop that has not been reclaimed as good, actually, Mm. that Mm. you think should be. I immediately cited 2010's Night and Day as my most urgent contemporary answer. You immediately replied and you were also loving the film, which Mm. is so cool. And I couldn't. I just thought that was such a good answer because like. I don't know. It's a lot of the replies were things that I think a lot of people, like a lot of expected replies. And um, I had quote tweeted with the Phantom because obviously like that's my agenda, Phantom everything all the time. Um, But when I saw Nine Day, I was like, fuck yeah, Jen, what a sick take. (laughs) Because I'm not very, uh, I don't really much care for things if they're critically acclaimed or commercially successful. I don't really have much impulse to care about a thing that's in the discourse in some capacity, right? I tend to just like, I like what I like earnestly and I don't tend to care too much about whether it was successful or whether it was hated or whether it was loved or whatever. But I can't even remember how this happened, but it was a few years ago and I want to say a few years ago, probably about like six to seven years ago, but on one of our cable channels, they started playing night and day um, just like, I don't know, it would be like once a day at some fucking random time. And <laughs> I was working from home mostly at that time. And I'm, you know, grew up in a newsroom. So I find working in silence really hard. So I'll usually have either music on in the background of the TV or whatever. And I had night and day and I was just like, I remember really liking it at the time and I'd seen it a few times since then, but I hadn't really dipped in like since 2010, basically. And then it was on and I was like, oh, and then the laptop's going away and a cup of tea's in my hand. And it is just like such a great ride. And that era and that subgenre of action rom-coms is yeah. very rare because mainly because it's expensive, right? Because you it need is. to be able to hire two stars that have chemistry, but also do those action set pieces. But I just, I think it maybe gets lost in the conversation behind things like Mr. and Mrs. Smith. But Night and Day was that one. And I'm so keen to hear, like, how did you discover the film? You know, I saw it when it was either, I don't know that I saw it in the theater, but that year Mm. it came to Blu-ray and I was sent it for review. And I remember just watching it and thinking, why did this not do better? Because it's it's ball, really. Mm. And I just had the best time. And years later, um, actually, this would have been during the pandemic, I was invited onto a podcast called Exit Through the 2010s. And you're supposed to pick like a prestige movie, essentially, right. of the 2010s, <laughs> like the best 
movie that you love from the last I already decade. like where this is going. I and already like <laughs> I just immediately was like, I watch a lot of heavy things for work mm. and for my podcast. I'm like, mm. I'm just going to choose night and day. Mm. And so that was the one I went with. And then for a follow-up, I did Salt. Both mm. of those movies had Tom Cruise attached ah. the same year. I love them both. And both of them should have done just immensely better. And they did not. They opened like a month apart. And uh, yeah, I've been a big fan of Night and Day since it dropped. I mean, the cast is insane. I love James Mangold. Um, mm. His movies like the 310 to Yuma remake, mm. Ford versus Ferrari, of course, Copland, all of those. So, mm. yeah. I love that you mentioned Salt because I'm a big um, noise guy. <laughs> Are you? I love noise. Awesome. Yeah. It's truly honest to me. Like, for, you know, each their own, but of that era, we call it like Australian New Wave. So, through that range is like your Peter Weir, your Gillian Armstrongs, your Simon Winters, who directed The Phantom, your Philip Noyce. And Noyce is genuinely one of my faves. The Bone Collector and Salt are two of my go tos from, from his canon. And I think Salt is just like, an absolute, I mean, it's, it's testament to like, it was obviously written for a man and blah, blah, blah. And I, I sort of hate a lot of that stuff when they just repurpose something retroactively to like shove a woman in, or it's like, it was yeah. written for someone white. And then, oh, we did colorblind casting. And I'm like, actually, you know, your gender and your ethnicity play a key part in how you move for through sure. the world and how the character would. But in saying that, this is the difference between when you inject somebody with Angelina Jolie's star quality into a part because that character doesn't feel like it was written for a man. It doesn't feel this, like, two-dimensional action archetype. It feels really nuanced and really complicated, and I just – there's so many things to love about it. And I love – anytime Lee Schreiber's in a movie, I'm like, oh, fuck, here we go. Here's the villain. He has that Peter I know. Quality I love Lee Schreiber. But, yeah, he's always <laughs> cast as the villain. Yes. And Peter yeah. Sarsgaard, same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, it's so funny to me. But um, the scene that I, that I remember, like, at the time that really punched my tits off was uh, Angelina Jolie in the bathroom, and she uses a sanitary napkin over yes. one of her wounds. And at the time I was like, what a nice, tricky little, like, gender commentary slash inversion but also super practical because it wasn't like a you know she's the man moment where the tampon's going up the nose it was like the padding of the sanitary pad and the absorption it would be perfect for a wound and I was like this is amazing and I have like slip I can't even remember what fucking book I slipped that into as like a little salt um salt reference but I love that movie and it night and day like very different realm because obviously like you know it's it's more centric on them as a couple but I love things that have romance in them and one of the things about salt is like instead of your you know your dead wife archetype you had a dead husband archetype Mm -hmm. right but the romance at the core of that film was something that I found like really endearing and imbued that character with empathy and compassion and made them relatable even though they were so unrelatable in so many capacities and especially once you see something like um I'm not sure if you've seen Red Sparrow the Jennifer Lawrence yes. Russian yeah so when that came out all those years later um the romance in that with Joel Edgerton which haunts me to this day because they have a sex scene <laughs> this is not obviously <laughs> important but there's a sex scene where she wakes up in the middle of the night and she walks out in the lounge to like go and fuck his brains out and there's this camera shot through her thigh gap, which again, like shout out to men always doing the most. And she's wearing <laughs> underpants, right? So he goes from being completely unconscious to her waking him up and like being on his dick in two seconds. And I'm like, okay. So she's wearing underpants. He's been unconscious. There's like a lot of leaps <laughs> that you have to get through there. The underpants are coming off with their push to the side. And he has to go from being unconscious to hard in like 2.5 seconds right all things (laughs) that you've got to like suspel an element of disbelief but it was such a wild choice to me because they have her being naked and very visibly naked multiple times throughout the film Mm -hmm. and then the next scene they had her in underpants and I was like oh salt would never have made this mistake (laughs) not at all no not the man that directed um dead calm and all those movies (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I love Dead Calm. Oh. I do. Yes. 
Such a banger. And I swear I won't tie everything back to the Phantom, but that's how Billy Zane ended up on the Phantom because he was filming Dead Calm in Australia and somebody on the set handed him a Phantom comic and he was like, what the fuck is this? And the Phantom is an American character originally but isn't as popular in the US anymore and is very popular in um, India, Sweden, Papua New Guinea and Australia and New Zealand, I should say. Um, and so he started reading the Phantom comic and then became obsessed with the character and ended up in the movie, which also shot here. Yeah. Well, one thing I love about Night and Day is it's very, very funny. Another movie we're going to talk about oh today is The long, or long Shot, which is also yeah. really hilarious. But it's so good to see. I think Cameron Diaz, we know, can be funny. She was in There's Something About Mary mm. and several films like that. Tom Cruise, usually we think of as just like Action Jackson. Mm. He's in all of these <laughs> movies, Mission Impossible and all these films, the new Top Gun Maverick. But when he is on, he is so charming and so mm. funny. I mean, it's kind of Jerry Maguire mode where he has to speak in monologues very mm-hmm. quickly. And I just think the two of them together, it's the couple from Vanilla Sky who <laughs> played very different couple in that movie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they're great here. And I think the banter yeah. is so good. When I announced oh. that we were going to do this, I heard from Ted Griffin almost immediately. Yes. Which was crazy because I was planning to have Ted back again. Uh, I'm actually recording with him next week on Curtis Hansen's thrillers. And he's like, you know, I'm excited to hear what you and Maria are going to say about this because I was one of the screenwriters on that movie. And I'm like, what? And the so- second you DM'd me and you're like, listen, you're not going to believe this. And I was like, <laughs> fuck, yes. I know. Yeah, it was really cool. He did uh, provide us with some behind the scenes info. His brother came up with, I think, some of the funniest lines in the goddamn script. Like so funny. the thing about ice cream. And that's why they got him, Lincoln. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, just some of the, you know, innovations they came up with. Also, Scott mm. Frank was one of the screenwriters. Mm. So many mm. people worked on this. Movie. I love Scott Frank. Me I love too. Scott Frank. Yeah, yeah. big fan. Yeah. There's the thing that this, like, so for people who might be like, why did you group Night and Day and Longshot together? The point that we were trying to make was about uh, a disparity of power. So in rom-com world, uh, it's like a subgenre called, well, I see, sorry, romance novel world. It's like, um, they call it a have and have not. And so like one of the really popular genres in romance is like uh, a rock star and a normie or yeah. a celebrity and a normie. Um, Millionaire. Of some capacity. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so there's a novel, a romance novel called Funny You Should Ask, which was um, like a pretty like mid-tier hit last year but I feel like is bubbling up to like more mainstream um commercial success over the next sort of 12 months but it was about a a journalist who interviews a celebrity and like the course of their relationship over a 10-year period and I think that base premise of like somebody in a position of power and a normie is really compelling to people you know it's so it's my fair lady for all intents and purposes right and the flip is like night and day is he's the super spy and she's the regular mechanic. So I love that. Love a yes. mechanic as a job. Like it just, mm-hmm. you, you could have had her working at some fucking PR firm or some bullshit. I know. <laughs> and the fact that it's a mechanic is great because I think it's just like, there's always been this sort of perception of Cameron Diaz as a guy's girl. Uh, mm-hmm. And I th- and I think that's like a pretty accurate perception, but also like, making giving her a role that's useful to their shenanigans I think is really handy like somebody who can practically do stuff if they get into that situation not fight the way he can but then long shot the flip is you know she's um she's a very well-known politician and aspiring world leader and he's the guy she used to babysit and I think it's so fun to see the flip of the two of them because that era of action rom-coms, so Mr. and Mrs. Smith, obviously Romancing the Stone are kind of probably two of the better known ones, but mm-hmm. um, I also really loved, which you don't like, Spy Who Dumped Me, uh, which was a big flop as well. But then after that, Lost City of D, which I didn't love, was a big hit in 2022 for people. And even Ticket to Paradise in a way, like, where you really are cashing in on the star power and the chemistry, the magnetism 
of those two leads in a scenario that seems quote unquote outlandish and in nine days capacity, the banter that they have on the plane as they're interacting. And she's like, she's so focused on like, oh my God, this guy, he's so cute. We're having this interaction and he's like manipulating and utilizing that distraction to take out people on the plane Mm -hmm. one by one by one. It's just the best. And even the the truth serum scene where um she's like, you know, I really think we can make this work. <laughs> it's just it's so it's, funny. Yeah. Ah, uh, it's so good. It's just delightful. What a delightful time. And long shot is delightful like that as well. And the stakes are just as fucking high. But it's like finding those moments of like uh a physical set piece combined with getting a chance to spotlight their chemistry and magnetism but also just really really great writing in terms of the dialogue and the interplay between the characters it's just the best both of them are kind of like road movies in a way or have that sort of like you know origin from screwball days like it happened one night where it's a couple together thrown Mm -hmm. into the you know shenanigans of the world and what I love about night and day what you brought up with the plane sequence Mm, which is so good is I mean she's considering him to be so seductive when he's giving Mm. his like list of things that he wants to do but when you watch the movie a second time you realize every single thing that he says they do Mm -hmm. yes which which is so perfect it's just like this could have been just a throwaway little section of dialogue I mean James Mangold when he took over he rewrote the scripts of course Mm. and but I love that everything does pay off later I think that's really cool. Long shot is, I think, just really surprisingly sweet, which mm. really kind of shocked me when I went in. <sighs> Not that I thought it was going to be, you know, um, a Judd Apatow thing, essentially. I thought it was going to be maybe a little bit uh, lighter and um, then a knocked up or mm. something. And it, it really was. It was more politically minded. Than I was mm-hmm. ex- expecting mm-hmm. going in as well. I think part of that is Liz Hanna, uh, her involvement. Yes, I love her so much. Yeah, my God, she's done some of my favorite episodes of Mindhunter. Did she? Good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like Longshot was my favorite film of 2019, and I was just so swept up in it. Like the romance is genuinely like really beautiful and interesting, and it's so yeah. funny because on paper. Charlie's Theron and Seth Rogen you know like what how does this work blah 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 but Charlie's is amazing I think she could have chemistry with a bathroom tile but <laughs> the two of them I think are both really smart people IRL and really politically engaged and socially engaged mm-hmm. and so that common ground off camera I think really bleeds into their work on camera and also just the like this, these road, like when you said the, they're both road trip movies, I was like, fuck, yes, Jen nailed it. <laughs> because that idea of like this romance blossoming and these relationships blossoming while they travel to different geographical locations is so fun. And I, I will say both of the films also they have in common, it's just banging supporting casts, like people yes. who don't waste a second of a scene that they're in. And for night and day, I'd be remiss as a Buffy fan if I didn't mention Mark Lucas as Karen Diaz. Oh, my God. He is so good. Yes. (laughs) But also in Longshot, Peter, I'm not Peter, sorry, Alexander Skarsgård as the Canadian Prime Minister with the fucked laugh. Excellent. And Jason Raphael. Oh, my God. God. It's too complicated. You wouldn't understand it. They're just like (laughs) people who are just shooting fucking threes in every scene that they're in. And also Alexander Skarsgård, I think he has such range. And it's a a Taylor Kitsch problem in that I think both – because they're so beautiful and traditionally really beautiful, Hollywood tried to make them leading men. And actually what they are better equipped for and what they have more interest in is playing these really weird character roles or odd supporting roles. And Mm -hmm. that's when you get to see them shine. And it's like you're seeing that now with Taylor Kitt shifting into more roles like that. But Skarsgård getting to be funny is such a treat because if you watch True Blood, you know he has it in him. But on a mainstream capacity like that with the fucking oyster, oh, my God, it kills yes. me every time. 
Yeah. Oh, it's the best. It's, it's the best. Such a funny movie. So you saw that when it was new in the theater? Do you remember? No. So, oh God, when did that? 2019 was a bit of a hellfire year for me. I like, I moved eight times. Oh, um, wow. I, yeah, I moved in between states and it was, I was, I had just like split up from my ex-husband at the time. And so oh. Blake would always joke to me, he's like, long shots, the movie that made you believe in love again. And I was like, it was actually, because <laughs> I was the first, I don't even know. I don't, honestly, I don't think it got a theatrical release in Australia, um, which mm. often happens. Like we don't get everything that you guys get. I think it just went straight for us straight to Amazon or straight to iTunes. I can't remember, but I was the first, I definitely remember being the first one in our group to watch it and just immediately being like, okay, Blake and his wonderful wife, Sam, I'm always trying to like find things that they can watch together or like a, like we would call it a family watch, right? Where it's like Mm -hmm. some movie that we all love, set it up. The Netflix rom-com with Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell is one of those. That's another one of our faves. Um, but that was a thing where it's just like, you guys have to watch this. Like Sam will love it. Like you'll love it. It's just, it's so fucking funny and so good. And it became an immediate film on the rewatch rotation. Yes. Like I couldn't even guess how many times I've seen it since. And night and day, the difference, I guess, with that era of rewatchability is you usually come to it late because mm-hmm. the access to films like night and day, it was via DVD and sounds silly, but even just the physical act of getting up and plicking out the disc, <laughs> and putting it in a DVD player. Whereas once it's on a streaming service or once it's on some cable bundle that you have and it's just on, you're like, oh yeah, night and day's on. Fuck yeah, love that. And that's how a thing can be a discovery. It's like one of the things I guess I miss about conventional television is that capacity to just discover a midday movie or discover a TV movie you haven't seen before. But it was just something that I had remembered. um, I think it was at South by Southwest that it premiered and they had boys to men at the screening. And I remember that being like the weekend it came out, that being a big discourse around people being like, oh my God, this movie is amazing. And boys to men played at the fucking premiere and everyone was freaking out. But then it bombed very hard and very fast at the box office. And of course, anytime that happens with something that's considered that has a quote unquote female bent to it, i.e. something with romance or something that has a co-female mm-hmm. lead. There are always these think pieces about like, why do women hate movies or some bullshit? And I remember reading a lot of those and just being like, oh, people fucking suck. Like it's <laughs> so much more complicated and nuanced than this. And um, anyway, I just, I immediately loved that film and it has just become one of the ones that you'll recommend to people. I think. Um, Nine days. I I remember seeing that theatrically with my mum, and the both of us just loving it. And we were both yep. like, "Oh my god, it's Riley from Buffy!" <laughs> but yeah. just, they yeah, have such multi generational appeal. I mean, my mm-hmm. mom loves to rewatch Night and Day with me as well. And then when it came to Longshot, um, Priscilla Page, who's a really good writer, uh, she talked about her parents loving that movie and mm. she watched it a bunch of times with her mom. And it was actually like my birthday was around the time that it was released. And my dad and stepmom were like, we're going to go see Longshot because my dad yeah. loves Seth Rogen and Riley's yes. Throne. And um, big time, that's what we went to see. And, you know, there was quite a bit of people there but when I saw it at the theater there was like this massive construction site like nearby and so they gave us our money back and it was really noisy but we didn't even care I mean we were having Mm. such a good time at the movie we just wanted to keep watching and yeah and these are ones I've rewatched several times yeah long shot is for sure I think definitely one of those secret source movies but um that I I just loved the sort of update on an American president, which is a film that I love. Oh, and me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought this was like a really good sort of update on the premise. And I like Jonathan Levine. Like he did, um, he did an ap- adaptation of a book that I'm obsessed with called uh, Warm Bodies, which was written by Isaac Marion. And it was a zom rom-com. It was like a zombie rom-com. Anyway, very beautiful book, and it got adapted into this movie that had John Malkovich and Teresa Palmer and Nicholas Holt into it, which is, you know, quite sweet and cute and whatever. But I always find his work interesting. 
even though if it's not somebody like, um, you know, Aguila Medotor or Chris Nolan, where I'm like, regardless, I'm their opening day. I usually find it eventually. And this was just, yeah, like there's just like a real sweetness to it, a real mm-hmm. earnestness too. Like I love the character, Charlie Theron's character being this person who is deeply passionate and a huge nerd and just like uncool. You know what I mean? Like uncool in every capacity. And that is the cool thing. But I also just like night and day just has a fucking banger opener where he's at the fucking. Oh my gosh. I always forget it. Every time I start that movie, I'm like, wait, am I, did I click the right movie? Cause yes. So funny. Fuck. There's so many deep cuts in there too. I think is like quote unquote media professionals. Um, yeah. the discourse around like he's not working for vice but he kind of is working for like a vice type organization and I used to work on a live nightly news show that ended up getting bought by vice and um and we had to do this like rebrand into into vice and it was just so we we had done all these parodies about it on our show at the time of which I played cocaine vo- vice employee number two or something and you know we were all like sort of making jokes about it but it was unbelievably on point, <laughs> it, especially so for that time, the discourse where like vice is sort of like it's had its cresting moment and it's it's dipping in a different way. And it was just oh, so fucking good. And the scene when they're at the party and he tears into the pseudo uh, Rupert Murdoch type character oh, before uh, tripping before down the, the stairs. Fall. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, a hat on a hat. It's just, it's a funny scene. And you think, you know, oh, he just impressed her and then he has to fuck it up, which I love. Yes. It's such a beautiful twist of false victory. And it's just, I I could spend so much. I was re-watching both of these in the lead up um, to doing this. So just having the best time. They make such a good double bill. Like they're yeah. really, if you were programming these two together, it would just, it would be such a good time. People would l- feel, they would leave feeling uplifted, I think. Um, and not in a like lift me up, you know, kind of way, but isn't that they had a really good time that they laughed, they swooned, they learned some shit. <laughs> they did. And, you know, um, Levine, when he made this, he said he wanted to make it like, in 80s rom-com like he was Mm. citing movies like working girl or um tootsie and it does it has that kind Mm. of sweetness and earnestness and you know something you can watch with your whole family or different generations and i think what else is great about these movies together is night and day kind of has that too you cited Um, romancing the stone but mm. also it just reminds me more of the 90s which is when James Mangold started making movies yeah. like Heavy and Copland and you know when we would actually mix genres together and do hodgepodge and also you know bank on romantic comedies and I think uh, that's something that's really cool about both of these films yeah yeah and I think it's something that goes really unacknowledged about action movies especially from the 90s era but say like late 80s to early 2000s right uh but there was I I wrote this action movie that set in one night called Drenched and it's about an opal heist that happened during a flood and as I was putting that together I was trying to like hard rain kind of exactly yes very very similar but that was the sort of thing that I was putting together was like what is it about these films that I love so much and how to write something that's new but simultaneously nostalgic. And one of the keys for, I think, why those movies rip is because they usually are under two hours. They're like, they're pretty tight runtime, but the thing that they all have in common, right, post Die Hard, Die Hard is really the first and then everyone's trying to copy that premise. Speed is Die Hard on a train. Hard Rain is Die Hard but wet. Cliffhanger is Die Hard on a mountain. But they all have a male-female romance in the film, whether that's going from strangers to lovers a la speed or whether that's people with a complicated past a la cliffhanger or Mm -hmm. whether that's people who are situationally thrown together, like even Linda Hamilton and Pierce Brosnan and Dante's Peak, but also the same for for Mimi Driver and uh, Christian Slater and Hard Rain. 
And mm-hmm. Die Hard, one of the reasons it works so well is it's this couple that's separated and he has all these issues with female ambition and drive. And it's very like, it's tail end of the 80s, but fuck, it feels so 80s. And I think that's one of the things that's like often missing from, or I have felt anyway for me as someone mm-hmm. who's a big softie at heart, but also loves to see people punched in the face, is that that romantic core to those movies is actually like, really important part of the story you never have to see them kiss you never have to see them bang sometimes it's great to see both but it's more just the that there's something else at stake there's obviously obviously like the bigger overall stake but then there's the we stake too and this is probably a weird example to make but um the the Dwayne the Rock Johnson movie Skyscraper that was one of the that was a good movie I okay thank you you have taste yes okay so I was in a writer's room last week and I was making um somebody in the writer's room watch Skyscraper and they were like, what the fuck? Like, why would I watch this? I was like, hear me out because it does harken <laughs> back to that idea of like a very simple all-in-one night premise, which I think yeah. is so appealing. But the romance between Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Nev Campbell, who's never been like not believable as someone who's fucking super capable and she plays a doctor and they're married and the two of them are like trying to get back together and like fight off these people and reunite with their family and I'm just like this movie slaps it really slaps and the reason it slaps is because it takes some of those elements from those 90s action movies where it is an elevator pitch premise that you can explain really quickly a pretty tidy runtime an all-in-one night, and then a romance that you actually have to A, care about, but B, believe at the core of it. And I think that's why I find things like Night and Day and Longshot so appealing, is it is that bigger high-stakes premise, but then also has a romance at the core of it. And I don't know, it's just fun. I just love to love stuff. And if a movie has action, great. If it has romance, great. If it has comedy, great. If it has stakes, great. Like, Throw all those elements in there if you can possibly without fucking it up. That's mm-hmm. a delight for me. It's a delight to watch. It really is. And just listening to you and citing Hard Rain and Mini Driver, I was <laughs> thinking of another movie from that era that I love, Growth Point Blank. Mm. It's kind of, it's action. It's oh a God. dark crime comedy. It's a hitman thing. It's a romance. Yeah. There's so much going on. And they just sort of throw everything at the wall to see what sticks. And it's, yep. it's like, a high school reunion movie. So yeah. It would be actually that would be a really nice. Now I'm expanding a double bill to a triple bill because I think Rose <laughs> Blank would fit really nicely in there. But man, I fucking I love Hard Rain. You can't get it in Australia. It's like a, a film that is just inaccessible. So you either have to have a physical copy or be crafty. And thank God, like people just know that this is a continent full of criminals. Because there's a really good HD rip of Hard Rain that's on YouTube. And I was just, I remember being in the pandemic and and wanting to revisit it and just being so annoyed because it was just like, you couldn't get it. And our post was gone to shit. Like you wouldn't get letters or packages for like months after the fact. And somebody had put a hard, uh, a hard rain rip that was HD on YouTube. And I was like, thank God. And it was <laughs> one thing. Yes. One thing. It was such a fun night too. I was like, this movie is really tight in premise and there's some really good twists there. And it just ends at the perfect point. Like there's no fat. It's just ends. There's a Betty White sort of, um, is it Betty White? I feel like it is. Yes. There's like a Betty White cameo, her and an old guy that I was like, I ditched that, but that's really the only thing. That is like everything else is just super lean in that movie. Yeah. No, very entertaining. As far as other movies that would kind of fit into this film festival, we're sort of dreaming up as we do this. <laughs> I know we were throwing around just other movies that we mm. liked, maybe mm. missing um, some of the rom-com aspects. Like I brought up The Heat mm. with Melissa McCarthy. I love The Heat. Sandra Bullock, and, which I love. And I always, I've been trying to bully Blake into doing one The Heat minute because Ooh. I know he doesn't like that film. <laughs> he doesn't? And, oh my God. I know you know why there's no not enough men who love uh who don't have fathers and love crime in it but um it <laughs> would be issues, like yeah. daddy issues it would be a very good subversion of the one heat minute premise if it's one the heat minute but we should fuck, do I it love that movie. 
we should it's so good it's so good yeah i'm trying to think of other movies that came out in the last decade or so can i ask when we were putting this together i had suggested spy who dumped me and you flagged you weren't a fan of it what was it about that film that you were like oof not for me um you know i think it was wow why am i blanking on her name um the lead actress the Kunis. oh no, no. i like kate. her the other one um, on her name kate uh what's the fuck kate mckinnon yeah yes. there you go yeah i think her character was it was it was too much i don't know yes. it was maybe <laughs> <laughs> i love kate mckinnon as an actress yeah. i think she's hilarious but i don't know if they just kind of let her go to an extreme maybe mm. and she just yeah. seemed like she was in a different movie at times so yeah I loved what it was going for though I yeah. think um it was such a good idea but it just didn't really work for me yeah yeah no fair enough art is subjective um but that was also like a similar vein of something that was a really big flop that I fell yeah. in love with and really like dug it but then it's also the thing where I find that film quoted among friends of mine and like people I kind of know in passing or women, but like it has found this like little sort of, I used to call it the sleepover phenomenon where it was like a movie might flop, but it would like generate an audience and a pop culturalness on the sleepover circuit. Right. Which is kind of like what Josie the Pussycats did now sans sleepovers because we're all, you know, grown ass women at this point, but, um, but I still love a sleepover. got to say full clarity, but it has become (laughs) that thing where it's like, you can talk about spy who jumped me with people and they know the beats, they have lines, they have quotes. And I find that really fascinating because it's, it almost shifted from like, flop to cult within like the space of 12 months in a way that long shot did as well and I find that really really fascinating because it's like it's one thing for a film to flop there are so many things that go into play that have to align for something to be successful it's luck it's a marketing budget it's timing it's all these things right but when a film flops and it's actually good it's really interesting to see how long it takes for it to find its level and something like Longshot and Spy Who Dumped Me, with which both found their level quite quickly, it really intrigues me because I'm just like, damn, you could have been a hit somewhere if somebody had like positioned, found a way to position this more successfully. Bros, I feel the same way. Genuinely, really great film and like really brilliant rom-com and really fascinating modern dissection of love and what that means and what relationships mean. But flopped. And I think a big reason that like why it flopped is they were so busy telling everybody how important that film was as the first studio gay Mm rom-com that they forgot to tell people it's fun. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think you bring up a really good point. Just thinking about movies becoming cult hits, um, couple other ones game night i feel like has kind of had a resurgence especially Uh on twitter and social media oh my god oh no he's dead (laughs) yes i know the line reads are so good and yes and also spy is Mm. another one i love with melissa mccarthy i actually prefer spy to bridesmaids but i'm like probably the one person oh you do okay no i mean like it really depends what kind of day you ask me i feel like bridesmaids was over for me overwatched it was like every fucking party or whatever yeah would be on in the background the lines the quotes the whatever i'm coming back around in it but it was just i was overexposed to it i really loved it but i was like super tired by the time you know it sort of settled the discourse settled down, I guess, a bit. But Spy is so fucking good. And it is Jason so... Jason Statham. Oh, my gosh. Rose Byrne. And, like, Jason Rose Statham <laughs> with that whole, like, uh, you know, sometime a man needs time alone at sea. Like, his whole shtick. Just fun and wonderful. And, mm-hmm. you know, I love Hobbs and Shaw. It's one of my favorite of the Fast and Furious films. Um, and part of the reason I love it is because of him getting to stretch a comedic muscle which you don't always get to see especially yeah. in a super serious franchise um mm-hmm. yeah it was just a delight spy rips spy is so great 
Yeah. Are there any others that I'm forgetting before we? Oh, I could go on forever. But um, yeah, if you have if you have thoughts and you feel like we've missed something out, uh, I guess hit us up on Twitter yes. for this um for this film festival that we're <laughs> yeah we're programming it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yes. Online, get a program together. That would be sick. Yeah. Get it on YouTube or get the people that <laughs> ripped uh, Hard Rain and they'll they'll put it together for us. They are, the same person also did a rip. I swear it's like they are have they have a like a key line into my soul because they did a rip <laughs> of uh, the Dixie Chicks documentary Shut Up and Sing, which I think is one of Whoa. the great music documentaries of all time. Um, and so I already have a hard copy of that, so I didn't need it, but I did appreciate them um, spending the time and doing both. <laughs> wow, you might have a secret admirer out there who just knows. Yes. I know. That's it. Yeah. They might. Who knows? If they've got double jeopardy lined up as well, then I think we're three for three. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Maria, I want to thank you so much for coming back and doing this with me. It's uh, always a joy. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for just wanting to spend time chatting shit about two movies that we love. Yeah, anytime. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.